Welcome, everybody, to episode eight of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Johnson, and I'm joined again, as always, by my colleague, Bill Rogio. Say hi, Bill. Hi, everyone. This week, we have another guest for you. We are excited to welcome Craig Whiteside to the podcast. Craig is a scholar and a gentleman. We've been big fans of his work for a long time. He is currently an associate professor for the U.S. Naval War College Resident Professional Military Education Program at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Now, that's a a mouthful, but I worked on getting that down. Uh, Now, as I was preparing for the podcast this week, I should say I Googled Monterey a couple times. I found myself Googling it probably 10 minutes before we started recording, just to remind myself of how lovely it is. And I've got to admit that I'm a bit jealous of Craig as we record this. Um, Craig is a West Point graduate, and he went on to serve in Iraq. He was the deputy of a paratroop battalion that fought against the Islamic State of Iraq and others in 2006 and 2007. And if you've been following our work, Bill's work, and Craig's work, you know that those were key years in the development of ISIS and its future caliphate. So we're eager to talk to him about that today. Most recently, Craig is the co-author of a new book titled The ISIS Reader, Milestone Texts of the Islamic State Movement. Craig wrote the book along with Hororo Ingram and Charlie Winter. We couldn't coordinate our schedules to get them all on today, but we'll hopefully make up for that in the future and see if we can get them on. We'd love to have them. We'll also post a link to their book so you can pick up a copy if you want. Both Bill and I highly recommend that you do. The three authors have had the unfortunate task of trying to promote a book during the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, which is probably not the ideal time to do a book launch, but Craig can tell me how that's going. Bill and I read through the book in the days leading up to this recording. We think it's an excellent contribution to anyone's library on jihadism. As our longtime readers and listeners know, we think any analysis of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or affiliated groups has to include a thorough reading of primary source documents, including the jihadists' internal correspondence and memos, as well as their public statements. This doesn't mean we accept everything they say at face value, that's hardly the case, but such sources are crucial for putting together an accurate picture of what is going on in the jihadi world. And we think that Craig and his co-authors did a wonderful job of translating and examining ISIS's foundational texts. So that's why we were eager to have him on this week. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Bill and Craig to kick off the conversation. Bill's time as an embedded reporter in Iraq actually overlapped with Craig's time there. So that's probably a good place for us to start this conversation. Bill? Hi, Craig. It's truly a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Um, Yeah, we seem to have... uh came close to crossing paths in Iraq in 2007. I was embedded there in uh, September to October of of that year during the surge. Uh, I was in uh, uh, Baghdad and in the area south of Baghdad, uh, uh, towns of Medane and Arab Jabur. Uh, I know that touches on the um, just the northern tip of the Sunni Triangle, also known as the Triangle of Death, where I believe that's where you were embedded, correct? Um, And, uh, you know, it was a very interesting time. The uh, U.S. was trying to stand up what they called the the Sons of Iraq, or the um, and, and basically what this was was the awakening the Sunni um, rebel groups that were trying to um, that were fighting against Al Qaeda and other groups that just opposed Al Qaeda's presence. Um, so tell us a little bit about your time there. I, I met some really interesting characters, a guy named General Mustafa, who's a former Ba'athist officer. Remember, he'd love to show everyone his American-issued Glock and did a pretty good job of, of securing Arab Jabur. He called himself the Lion of Arab Jabur. But uh, tell us some uh, some uh, stories about your time there, what you saw and that, that complex fight in your area, which concluded not just the Sunni jihadists, which was Al-Qaeda in Iraq and others, 
but the but there were Shia groups operating in that area, and there was this is where a, a lot of the the death squads were operating, um, sort of under the cover. It was all focused on Baghdad, but you had a lot of things going in the area of your um, in your area of operations. Yeah, he thanks thanks for having me on. I, I've I've been uh, huge fans of yours and, and a really long time reader. Uh, back when there were, you were probably the only ones that were covering this area, particularly between me coming back from Iraq in, in really late 2007, 2008 and, and beyond. And I went back to school and the, and the only thing I could find to really continue to track events in, in the area that you're talking about, which is an area that I was really interested in and, and watching was long war journal and, and both of you plugging away. So, so it's, it's really an honor to be, be on this show. And, and I've been following the generation jihad, uh, podcast as well, David last week. And you're, uh, you're one in the Islamic state, the rise of the Islamic state, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago and, uh, they're, they're pretty exceptional. So thanks for having me on. Um, oh, it's our pleasure, Craig. Really, trust me. We we are very happy to have you here. Awesome. Uh, the you know the time that we were there, you know, mid two thousand seven, uh, is is just such a it's just such a fundamental uh, milestone um, for the U.S. involvement in Iraq, as you well know, and I know you had spent tours before. I was there kind of tracking our evolution of, of counterinsurgency doctrine and how we were doing uh, in, in the fight uh, against, you know, as you mentioned, multiple players across the spectrum. And it, it was, it, it's a pretty complex, uh, it was a pretty complex fight. And that's, that's exactly what I saw, our unit saw. Um, we were right on the Euphrates River Valley. We were looking at uh, Sunni extremists in, in one direction to the north along the uh, Jurfa Sucker and moving up uh, through Yusufia and, uh, and beyond Oasat and some really tough areas to operate. And then to the south, we were fighting kind of two directions. We were fighting uh, Jaish al-Mahdi, Jam, uh, militia groups, but also splinter groups that... Um, have become, you know, uh, AAH or Qatar al Hezbollah. So groups that we're very familiar with today. I mean, when you look at what's come out of even that area, as far as influence wise, you've got um, Asab al-Haq with uh, Kazali's group in, in Iraq, the Shia militia group. And then you have uh, still remnants of the Islamic State operating in those areas. So to, in some ways, it doesn't seem like a lot has changed since we were there, Bill. Uh, the the real interesting thing was the awakening period. It's it's a period that that I've done a, um, some research on, having been involved in standing up Sons of Iraq units, and then being really invested in what happened to them over the years since we partnered with them uh, to to go after the Al Qaeda in Iraq, and then they were transitioning at the time to Islamic State of Iraq in in two thousand uh, late two thousand six seven. Yeah, and I, I I think that's one of the um, biggest uh, sto- missed stories: the abandonment of the Awakening slash Sons of Iraq slash Concerned Citizen, depending on what the the U.S. military wanted to call them. I mean, with the with the precipitous exodus of the United States in in 2011, we abandoned that entire intelligence network that 
groups that were willing to fight the Islamic State that, you know, could provide intelligence on what was happening across the border in Syria. So it's it's one of, to me, one of, it's obviously I'm not responsible for the decision, but it's, it's a big regret of, of what could have been, you know, would the Islamic State actually have arisen if those groups could have um, or would have been reconstituted uh, had the, had we had stuck it out there just a little bit longer and backed them. And, you know, you're, you know, I feel the same way for, for a lot of reasons. And, and there are a lot of reasons that the, the Sawa awakening, the Sunni tribal, but also Sunni resistance groups kind of flip sides. It's kind of a conglomeration, a loose coalition of, of folks uh, that might not have been as stable as we thought it was, but we could have helped it a lot more like you're like you're alluding to. And uh, don't take my word for it or, or Bill's, but, you know, in, in the book, we spend some time in uh, the Fallujah Memorandum chapter. And the Islamic State absolutely feels the same way. I mean, they're yes. the early Islamic State of Iraq realized that what went wrong was that they had lost the tribes and they had lost, um, they had mismanaged relations with their rivals to the point where the rivals had turned on them. And they spent a tremendous amount of energy, both militarily, politically, you know, resource-wise, money, putting money towards uh, buying off tribal sheikhs, um, assassination programs for those who would not come back to the fold or come back to what they consider to be the real Team Sunni. And, you know, it's it's a real fascinating look at their counter strategy to what really was our successful strategy in 2007-8 as it played out. Yeah, I yeah I, I, I keep going back to that and wondering what if, what if. And obviously we can't build a time machine and, and see what happens. But these groups floundered because of the, you know, Obviously, there was a lot of resistance with the Shia uh, government and, you know, Shia political parties. But with the U.S. leaving that lever, um, it was lost, that that ability to influence. I mean, look, we were able to stand them up. It's reasonable to assume that had we stuck it out and fought for them, we could have had continuing success. Um, I'm going to circle back before we we get into the meat of the um, the really interesting... I'm sorry, you know, I was going to say, you know, say, Bill, is I've got three notes. I'll show you here on our Zoom cast. I've got three notes on the Fallujah Memorandum, which was a great chapter in your book, uh, Craig. And we're going to come back to that because that's a great document. Uh, but Bill's going to go start a little bit earlier in that. We'll work our way up to it. But that is a that is really a key document. And I, I quite frankly, I think your reproduction analysis of that text, as well as a couple others, is worth the book uh, alone. I think it's re- very good. Excellent. And that, again, I've got three pages. I've got three pages of notes on it. So it's obviously something I thought was, uh, you know, crucial. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah. The, I mean, the, yeah, before we dig into the actual meat of, of these um, statements that you, you got you so expertly uh, dissected and analyzed, uh, there was one thing at the beginning of the book here that um, really caught my eye. It was on page two. And, and you, you discussed the resiliency of the jihadists in Iraq, and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote from the book here, um, because this is an issue that, that that's near and dear to the heart of Tom and I. So uh, here here it goes. You said, despite the continuing efforts of a U.S.-led coalition to eliminate its remnants and hunt down its leaders, the group has remained remarkably cohesive organizationally, ideologically, and strategically, a true measure of resilience beyond mere survival. For each emerging trend that suggests. It is on the down and out, others spring up, hinting that is clawing its way back. 
Now, Tom and I have noted this characteristic of jihadist resiliency time and time again, not just in Iraq, but in other theaters, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Mali, Nigeria, and elsewhere. In your opinion, what is it about jihadist movements that makes them so resilient? What is What are some of the key factors that allows them to stand up to, to the world's greatest superpower and its allies and just come back and fight, continue the fight? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and you know, I, I'd I'd start again by pointing back that the the Long War Journal has because of its continual coverage of this, it's it's really consistent coverage of jihadist groups in general when they're up or down, ebbing or flowing, and you that that's helpful for researchers like like myself understand. Uh, well, what Herero and I call this cycle. These these cycles are they're life cycles, and and these groups are are able they they're flexible enough to to kind of go up and down and and go with the flow as opposed to trying to trying to fight that particular flow. So so on the you know you your your writings have been influential in in this understanding and that's that's how that's how we've looked at it for some time but but again we've been following your work for a long time the um you know there there are a lot of factors that you're i think you're exactly right when you say factors like a lot of times people kind of just go to one factor like let's say ideology ideology helps groups you know there are marxist insurgencies in india that have been around for decades and ideology helps keep them fighting um, for the Islamic State, I think it's a, it's a couple more things. Ideology is important to them. They're clearly an ideological group. Um, they're they're you know much you know almost indistinguishable from Al Qaeda in that in that sense, uh, though they say they have a different method. Um, you know, the it's also a couple other things. I think they're pragmatic. They they have they're. One of the sub stories we talk about in ISIS Reader is how they've adapted to the tribal uprising we just talked about and adapted their own kind of rigid application of ideology in tr very culturally conservative tribal areas. They've, they've really been pragmatic, and that's something you don't hear about this particular group. They're, they're almost Maoist in that sense of adapting carefully to populations that are important to them and, and not caring too much about populations that, that aren't. And they've also been really good at making money. And yeah. that's been a source of, of issue for them from an ideological perspective because they're uh, very, uh, very much like a mafia black market organization. And that runs counter to a lot of the religious rhetoric that they use, but that's given them a lot of staying power and they've they've been really they're almost two-faced in that regard a lot of people think of them as liars in their propaganda and i think they're they're less two-faced in their propaganda than they are in in the ways that they make money to sustain their organization and pay their fighters and so again this it's an that's another example of this pragmatism and this almost like hidden hypocrisy that they that they are careful to to contain but it's there and you can see it in some of the documents that yeah, yeah. I mean, I I could not agree with you more on all of that. I mean, the the ideology definitely drives them, but they have shown to be uh, a 
remarkable ability to be self-reflective, to adapt to the situations at hand. And I'm, I'm not talking just about the Islamic State here, um, but other, um, you know, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban and whatnot. And yes, they do often do things that are against their um, their ideological worldview, but I think they, they'll justify it often that the ends will, um, the, the means will justify the ends in those cases. And, um, let me, let me, let me ask yeah, a ahead. question here. Let me interject one question here for you. Cause this is something I know you've worked on Craig and I, I legitimately want to want your, know your opinion on this and figure out what, what your take is on it. Of course, there's been, um, a lot said about the role of former Ba'athists in, the Islamic State of Iraq and then ISIS now it grew over time. It's something we've documented, of course, in terms of, you know, some of the key individuals, although not nearly all of them. Uh, some of the key individuals have uh, certainly have that background. I do think that that angle gets overplayed at times. Um, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, the argument that sort of ISIS was a direct outgrowth of Saddam's regime holds water. I think that there's a lot of flaws in that, a lot of holes in that argument. Um, I do think that there are two things that I keep coming back to, and I'm wondering your opinion on this. The two things I see besides the key personnel, some some key personnel like Haji Baker and others over time who, who worked for Baghdadi and helped him consolidate his control over the organization, um, some, besides that sort of biographical element, I think there's something to be said for that some of these guys were involved in Saddam's neo-Stalinist state and his totalitarian methods. And they could, that was something that there were certain tactics or ground knowledge that they could import into the new rising Islamic State architecture that helps them maintain their grip on power, especially within Iraq. Um, I think that's one aspect I, I sort of think that there is a there's something some merit to the argument. And the second thing is is this this obsession with killing Shia civilians in Iraq and killing Shiites. I think if you go through the history of Iraq, of course, and you go through two decades of Saddam's propagandizing and, and sort of vilifying the Shiite population and the underlying demographic issues that Iraq faces, that sort of makes some sense where maybe in terms of the people they're recruiting and the population they're drawing from and some of these key figures, um, you know, maybe, maybe that partly explains why there's such an obsession with killing Shiites. Obviously, that's one point of distinction from Al-Qaeda elsewhere, where Al-Qaeda, you know, has basically decided that it's it, it's not going to make the overt targeting of Shiite civilians a deliberate part of its strategy. Um, you know, but of course, that was something where there was a disagreement, a big disagreement in Iraq. And I just was wondering about your opinion on those two things as somebody who's covered this organization for so long. What is your view of all that? And I've just given you a whole garbled mouthful of stuff to deal with, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> see, if you, are, see what you think of those. You know, Those are, those are huge, huge questions. And uh some of my earlier research and publications are on those two particular topics. So uh, I'll be careful not to go too, too long on those questions because I'm sure we've got a lot to cover. But, um, you know, on the, on the Bathis question, I, I would agree exactly with what you're saying. It, it, it tends to be overplayed and, and kind of simplistically, hey, these are this is a neo-Bathist organization under camouflaged as a as a jihadist islamist group and i think you know we know it's the opposite it's really the opposite but um much like al-qaeda has really tried to go out early in their early in their existence tried to go out and and find military people who also believed in the ideology in order to train i mean they had a dearth of military experience and and training uh whether it's bomb making or insurgency snipers i mean just the technical aspects of being an insurgency you kind of need that expertise and they've they've been they've gone after it they've been pragmatic about accepting people like haji bakker who probably weren't haji bakker might have been but others like sway dowie probably weren't the most 
you know, dead, he's recruited in prison as an Islamic, as a, as a kind of nationalist resistance guy. And he's recruited in prison by Islamic State folks. But, you know, we don't really ever know how ideological they are. And so at the end of the day, you know, the Islamic State is a, is a really weird conglomeration of networks, which helps them a lot of times, because if you penetrate part of one network, like the ex-Bathist, you can't get into the, the, the jihad, the pre-2003 Islamists, right? These are separate networks that are loosely connected inside of a, inside of this network. And so, um, yeah, the, the, you can see in, in ISIS reader, we, we cite the leadership publicly saying we will take Bathis, former Bathis military officers, uh, you know, below the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, by the way, they wanted younger guys, <laughs> which I can't blame them, you know, and, yeah. and, and then, but they had to be ideological. They had to memorize a chapter of the Quran. They had to live, they had to walk the talk and, and that's how they viewed it. And, and they, but they were, they were looking for that. And they had very famous Baptists from the beginning, 2004 ish. I think their chief of staff was a, was a former Baptist colonel. Sure. And so you, you, Zarqawi's, Zarqawi's earliest cell had, you know, former yeah. Baptist in it. Yeah. Right. I mean, Bilawi it, it, was, was in his, yeah. he had one ex Baptist, uh, Bilawi who leads the Mosul campaign in 2014. Yep. Uh, he's a, he's a young special forces captain. Uh, but, but a lot of these folks were probably already Islamists or leaning Islamist, um, some of them even before Turkmani, it seems before the invasion even. So right. it's just weird, weird mix of, of probably the, the Bathist failing state by 2003 and, and, and smart people who are looking for through the future, like what's the future going to be? Um, so, so I think that's a really interesting aspect. And I think it's, you know, like a lot, like the Islamic state, it's a mix of, it's a mix of a lot of things. And, you know, anyone who says like, hey, the Islamic State's going to die because the Baathists are all dead, which I think they are, the ex-Baathists, they're not Baathists, um, is making a mistake, right? That that's, that that's not the case. And, and not only that, uh, I, a fellow researcher and I played a game of, you know, name, name the top five most influential mm-hmm. Islamic State figures. When you do that, there's not even a Baathist, not, a, not right. a former Baathist in there. So, you know, I, I did, I did the same thing in preparing the question for you. I had the exact same thing. You, <laughs> yeah. you go, you go through, I mean, you go through the famous or infamous sort of video footage where you have Abu Muhammad al-Nani and Abu Omar al-Shashani standing on the border of Syria and Iraq when the bulldozer comes and wipes off the Westphalian border, you know, uh, you know, neither one of those guys is a former Baathist. You know, they they both they both have different backgrounds, and you can go through the pecking order. There's a whole bunch of guys who are are senior. That's why I emphasize it. But I'm wondering about what about the Shiite angle, about the obsession. I mean, in terms of inside Iraq, you guys know better than I do. But in terms of population in Iraq, this sort of do you think? I guess the question is, are they was the Islamic State sort of playing off? I mean, I think they certainly were. But how much do you think they were playing off of these pre-existing currents? Is, animosity and vilification hatred for the Shiite population and did that amplify that sort of aspect of their own program for the war in Iraq and elsewhere that's an important question because I think a lot of times again um, the, the the value of the primary docs is to understand their explanation as to why they go after the Shia and it is not what is popularly described which is this animus Sarkawi hated Shias or you know that uh, these these personal animus um, you know, Zarqawi explains it in the letter that he writes that, that 
frequently everyone pays attention to Zawahiri's critique of Zarqawi and his kind of his yeah. his commands to you know knock this off please stop bombing the Imam Ali mosque you know the the very famous Shia mosque uh, please don't do that again um, these Zarqawi's explanation is like like it, this is a fantasy if you think we're gonna focus on the Americans get them out which they're mm. leaving anyways this is Zarqawi and he's he's off on his timeline. Um, but he, he really, the Americans are leaving. Like we can, we'll hit them and we'll keep hitting them, but they're going to leave anyways. And they, one and two, they don't really, this is Arkawi's words. They don't really understand who we are. They drive right by us and they can't, they don't know us from another person. He goes, well, let's say we drive the Americans out. What's going to happen then? Yeah, we're not going to be able to set up a caliphate because the Shia will be in charge. What we have to do is short circuit the Shia formation of a stable government with a military that's effective if we can do that we can stay if we can't do that he actually says we will have to leave and so it's a very strategic rationale for targeting shia and the only way to do that he sees as a small sunni group amongst many sunni groups that are more interested in resistance to the occupation than necessarily what comes next uh, as a jihadist who had some experience in Afghanistan, was familiar with the mess that happens in Afghanistan post-Soviet withdrawal, he he's thinking, and I think a lot of other Islamists are thinking, what happens next? And what happens next is, you know, there's going to be a lot of more fighting. And so their idea was to position his group as the protector of all Sunnis, to rally the Sunnis to them. And the only way to do that was to do really right out of terrorism 101 provocation of the government and cause them to overreact. And they really did. I mean, I know Bill saw a lot of Shia militia activity that was, you know, ethnically cleansing Sunni neighborhoods and they drove people right into the ranks of the, the future Islamic state. Yeah, and if there's one thing, you know, people think that the the awakening was driven but just by its resistance to Al Qaeda, it was uh, it was more than that. It was also a fear of these Shia militias. So this is why in the Sunni triangle in south of Baghdad, in Baghdad, in Anbar, these groups formed up, and not just to not just to drive. Well, they wanted to drive Al Qaeda out because. Al-Qaeda was creating this Shia backlash. So they opposed Al-Qaeda's Islamic State that they were attempting to pose, impose on them. But they also feared the Shia backlash when, you know, in a lot of cases they witnessed it personally. So I think it's, you know, it's it's a key point. Look, Zarqawi in, in that, that 2004 document, I love this book because you got me to go back and read something I haven't read in well over a decade. And here's how he describes the Shia, he, his, in Zarqawi's own words, uh, the insurmountable obstacle, the lurking snake, the crafty and malicious scorpion, the spying enemy and the, the penetrating ven- venom, end quote, and also, quote, the looming danger and the true, cha- the true challenge, end quote. Zarqawi is very clear. This is in a letter to al-Qaeda's central leadership. He's very clear that once the U.S. leaves, that the Shia are building the military, they're building the police, they're building the state, and that these are the people that we're going to have to fight. This is the real challenge. He says fighting the Americans is easy. Fighting our own Muslims, fighting the Shia, that's going to be the heart, the real challenge in what we have to do. It. It's He's been often characterized as just being this rabid Shia hater. Sure, he may hate the Shia, but he has real 
um, strategic and tactical considerations for why he con- conducted this th- these attacks. Um, and, you know, and this goes to my next question here. You note right away in chapter one that Zarqawi, um, he's not the not a mere thug intent on delivering n- nihilist violence. By 2004, he was known to be behind a series of deadly suicide truck bombings, including attacks on the, U- the United Nations headquarters and the Jordanian embassy in Baghdad. Yet he never claimed atta- these attacks. Tell, um, why, why is this? And tell us why. Tell us about Zarqawi and his ability, ability to think as, as both a tactician and a strategist. Like, is he, tell us why he was more than just some guy who was thought to, um, who was widely believed to love to kill people with suicide bombs. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. Um, it, it, it's hard to know because it's not actually written out, you know, again, the focus on primary docs. And, but reading between the lines of some of these primary docs and we have some of this description in isis reader and it's the the group was afraid to go public it, it, everyone knew and the u.s was publicly blaming zarqawi but zarqawi's pretending like he didn't exist which is a really interesting almost almost a passive aggressive form of disinformation or misinformation misinformation i guess is a better way to put it he just wasn't claiming anything even though it was clear you know these massive bombings in karbala in june or january of 2004 uh, killing hundreds, and th- these go unclaimed for a while. Um, our best guess is that he's building up a media organization that can clearly, he's building the organization first. And, and so that, in that way, it's very strategic. Uh, it'd be very tempting probably to, to claim those particular uh, events, these ca- these really catastrophic bombings that were so high signature I mean, one of them clear. killed. One of them killed Sergio Demello, right? I mean, yep. it was the it was the UN. One of them killed the number one Shia yeah. cleric in, yeah. in Iraq. Hakeem. Just about yeah, Hakeem. Right. So I mean, these are these yeah. were cataclysmic. Yeah. And in the you know and then when you see the blame, the U.S. is blamed because they, there's no security and there's no one claiming it. So then conspiracy theories come out. I mean, it's almost brilliant. Although I'm sure it was more about his hesitancy to really. Uh, even form his own group. There's there's an interesting discussion that we lay out in in ISIS Reader between the senior leaders of the Islamic State at the time, uh, Azam Abu Azam Al Iraqi, the guy who leads the fight in Fallujah. The, these folks are saying, well, we we really just he wasn't ready to come forward. And I think it was one of his spiritual advisor Abu Anas al Shami who finally is like, we've we we're not going to we're not going to make any ground we're not making a lot of ground here actually we, we need to we need to go public and that's when Zarqawi finally starts he releases a, his first public speech as the leader of the group that eventually becomes al-Qaeda in Iraq and part of that even is negotiating with with al-Qaeda and trying to get them to accept him as an affiliate which they're reluctant to do as you guys have written a lot about so so in, yeah, in fact, ways, in fact, yeah. on on, on yeah. Zarqawi, it's it's interesting listening to you talk, hear you talk about him as a strategist. You both, you and Bill, and I actually agree with you. There's more to his strategic thinking than he's given credit for. And it's interesting on this that point, real quick, when you talk about his problems with Al Qaeda. I mean, Atiyah Abdel Rahman, who was uh, somebody was underestimated in Al Qaeda's senior hierarchy. You know, it's in 2005 he's even urging Zarqawi to step down. You know, saying, you know, but are you aren't you basically out of your league here? You know, shouldn't you step down, and let somebody else come into the fold and lead the organization? It's really interesting to watch that uh, dynamic play. And I think, you know, 
it's interesting. I don't I don't know how much you know. It's an interesting question how much Al Qaeda, where Al Qaeda's actual misjudgments came with came to the leadership in Iraq and the, the dynamics there. You know, because you go back and you read the correspondence you guys are talking about between Zarqawi and, and Zawahiri, for example, and you could see where Zarqawi has a better understanding in some cases of the on-the-ground dynamics than Zawahiri, of course, does. Um, but in the long run, at the same token, I think there is some truth to, to al-Qaeda senior leadership's critiques, of course, in terms of the long-run effects of all this and what you're doing. So it is a sort of a give and take, but I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I just thought it was interesting. I, I was, we've been, I wish I had your book, Craig, about, uh, oh, I don't know, three months ago, because I was going through all of... Uh, all of the literature out of al-Qaeda senior leadership and Bin Laden's files and elsewhere on Iraq. And I now have to go back. We're about to submit the book, and I now have to go back and redo some of the footnotes to your book to add stuff from your book into our book. Yeah, well, I do I'm looking that. forward to your contribution. Yeah, well, I, you well, and I have talked about that for a while, your your yeah. work on on the al-Qaeda side of this particular relationship. Yeah, it's, really it's, interesting. it's interesting. Yeah, Daveed and I, Daveed Gardenstein Ross and I have a book coming out. And there's I now, reading through your book and preparing for this podcast, I'm knocking myself on the head because there are at least four or five footnotes that I now need to go back and update with your, your guys stuff. Which I is mean, excellent. this is why we did. Well, this is why no, this excellent. was our idea. Yeah. To try to help kind of connect these gaps that have been largely like, Oh yeah, we know that, but do we really know that? You know? Yeah, no, that's the fundamental question. I mean, that, that's the, that's the interesting thing about all this. I mean, I, there, there are always gaps in this and you know, it's interesting at the beginning of your book too, you guys have a, a, a sort of disclaimer of sorts on primary on using these sources in the media and everything about, you know, you're not sympathizing or promoting and you're trying to understand them. And it's interesting. You guys have to make that point because there are people who misunderstand why you look at this stuff. And, you know, look, the three of us have been covering this for years and you go back to a document from 2004 and you learn something new. You know, you read this stuff over again. You know, we're sitting here in 2020. I'm learning stuff new going through your book or remembering stuff that I had forgotten. And that that's it's, those are key insights into the jihadi world that you don't get unless you're constantly assessing and reassessing these documents. And it's not a matter of sympathizing, promoting with them. Or, you know, we see this sometimes because the Long Work Journal, we do a lot of coverage of what they're saying. Um, that's not to promote or amplify it. It's to just try and figure out what they mean and what the context is. And I think that's a, a valuable contribution here. What better way to understand your enemy than to know what they're saying and what they're thinking and what their problems are and what's working for them. And the only way to do that, particularly in secretive organizations like this, is to go through this information. Yeah, I've, I've uh, Bill, I've caught myself, you know, relying on newspaper summaries of some of these really key speeches for way too long. And then in the process of doing the book, you know, taking, taking my own medicine, reading texts that I had never read before that end up in the book. And I'm, you know, I've done a lot of work on this. I've, I've coded stuff for a dissertation, their strategic communications and uh, kick, end up kicking myself because I should have read this a long time ago. I would have made connections earlier and there's nuggets in here that, um, that really helped me understand some other problems I've been working on. You know, let's say the evolution of their insurgency doctrine, which I'm really fascinated about now. But now I'm going back, like, did Zarqawi use these particular phrases when he's talking about his strategy, right? And, and, and then what is it in Arabic versus what is it in the translation that I have in the book, right? And so it, all of these are valuable exercises, I think. Well, I think I think you, you guys identified that in the, the Fallujah memo. I think it was um, from late 2009, early 2010. The use of the word "remaining," the Arabic word for "remaining," Bakia, you know, for "remaining." 
Um, you know, and the fact that that was very early on, because of course the ISIS mantra became remaining and expanding. Everybody thought of that in 2013, 2014, but you guys isolated how that was actually part of their theme much earlier, years earlier. And again, that's that's the the value in reexamining these source documents. Yeah, I think you know Brian P- Fishman picked that up a really long time ago. Oh, that's as right. someone that's right. who also yeah. was pit, was reading primary sources but you have to read abu umar's speech in 2007 at the end of it where and then you also realize that he can see the catastrophe coming you know the one that bill was talking about with the awakening this is march 2007 this is before i had before people had come to my unit and said hey we want to do an awakening right if i had paid a little more attention you know and i remember reading that speech in in the spring of 2007 it really opened up a lot of eyes but when i look back on it now it's like oh he was You know what? If this thing goes south, the Islamic State will remain because we've done a lot of work so far to get it. And he's so adamant about it at the end that it becomes their catchphrase from 2007 on to make it through the tough times. Right. And in those it's it's a really important aspect. But again, you'll miss it entirely if you don't actually read his speech in that in 2007. No, I think that's exactly right. You know, I, I got a question for both you and Bill. Um, maybe both can discuss this because you were both in Iraq there. And we've had a couple references to the counterinsurgency, the insurgency doctrine of you know what became known as ISIS. But then, of course, there was the abandonment of the counterinsurgency doctrine within U.S. military circles. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on sort of how this is all played out and evolved here. I mean, I think um, part of our critique at Long War Journal of all this is the erratic policymaking, decision-making both in our political elites and our military elites when it comes to these issues and these wars. Um, you know, it's sort of, you know, the, the policymaking is all over the place. And I, I've given up on any sort of um, big idea, uh, ideology that's going to solve everything for everybody. But it seems to me that we sort of shift gears way too quickly on all these different issues. And, you know, and I'm just curious what you think about what you learned from their insurgency doctrine and what we didn't learn in terms of sticking with a counterinsurgency doctrine, or maybe we should never have have gone with it in the first place because there's some people who argue that yeah i mean i think our problem is we're fighting our wars on political timetables of four years of who's going to be the next president and we've we've lost the ability to have a unified um military and political strategy when it comes to wars everything has become politicized I'm, i realize this is nothing new but this is something i really think that accelerated after 2004 um, you know, people that supported the Iraq war abandoned it immediately due to an election cycle. You know, so the election cycles, we're looking at fighting and winning wars on two to four year timelines because that's when the next president may come in. So, you know, President Obama, you know, the, the plan for Iraq was U.S. forces would be there supporting Iraqi troops at some level and training and providing, you know, ISR and things of that nature up until 2020. That was the Petraeus plan, right? President Obama's elected and the U.S. does a full withdrawal by 2011. So we can't have any unified strategy. Meanwhile, the jihadists are looking on timetables of decades and, and centuries. That's how they're thinking. And that's why they're able to, to sustain these wars. That's, that's what gives them resiliency. They recognize they're losing now. But if they just stick into the stay into the fight 
and, you know, and keep working hard, keep, keep trying to recruit, keep building their infrastructure. They're there when we're not. And that gives them all, that's all the, that's half of the advantage of the insurgents. Obviously you get, you know, some with a, you know, safe haven across the border, which they did in, in particularly inside Syria. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, our counterinsurgency strategy was pretty good. I mean, and it also includes building up an Iraqi government and and working to deal with Iraqi political issues. Was that perfect? No, but it was working and it kept things like the awakening funding. But as soon as the U.S. began, signaled that it was withdrawing, all of that fell apart and our entire strategy fell apart. And, you know, honestly, these this is no way to fight a war. And um, if we really need to think long and hard before we engage in another insurgent, any type of war, but particularly dealing with an insurgency's guerrilla warfare before we um, we need to rethink about how we're going to deal with this politically um, before we uh, we actually commit to another war. Yeah, let me say one quick thing on Iraq politically, because just to amplify that and I want to turn over to Craig, I think. What happened in our country was that people conflated the objections to the growing course of objections to the initial uh, idea to invade Iraq in 2003 with the game as it was playing out in Iraq, the war that was unfolded in Iraq afterwards. You know, the bottom line is you couldn't put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, you couldn't undo the 2003 invasion. And certainly our critiques at the time were, I, I remember this. I mean, I, look, I if I had to do it over again, would I have invaded Iraq in March 2003? No, you know, I would not, given the, given the costs of it and how this unfolded. Um, but I can't look at the situation that way in 2008, 2009. I got I to gotta think about how the, the world has unfolded around us. And so, you know, <clears throat> I guess part of our concern going forward is, and maybe I think you absolutely have insights here, Craig, on this on the insurgency doctrine of the jihadis and, and how our counterinsurgency doctrine has sort of collapsed, is that the jihadis are primarily organized as insurgents. This is a big theme of Long War Journal. And part of the reason why terrorist threats are regenerated is because they can take and carve out some portion of their insurgency operations for operations in Europe, you know, planning attacks against the U.S. and others. And that's part of the reason why we've gotten into this endless war cycle that everybody's now criticizing. And I, there's, some of the criticisms are legitimate, of course. Um, but part of it is it's a misunderstanding of who our enemies are. The reason, part of the reason why this is endless war is because of how they're organized and what they're doing, you know. And I was curious what you think long run here, what you learned in Iraq. And again, we're giving you these huge questions. We're asking for sort of a, a, a Yoda level answer for on, on on sort of the essential 9-11 questions. But what do you think about all this going forward here with the insurgency doctrine of the jihadis and the lack, collapse of our counterinsurgency doctrine? So, um, yeah, I mean, I agree with with both of you on on all of that from their side. Again, the the one of the real impetus for writing this book amongst Charlie uh, Herrera and I is is to present their side of this, the missing side of this. Like I've uh, my my Ph.D. advisor wrote a book on the Sawa, a really good book interviewing them. And it looked at the U.S. and interviewed the U.S. and the Sawa. But the missing part of that triangle, right, is the Islamic mm. State, right, yeah, the right, ISI. Right. And so and so we, we continue, you know, so our intent here was to do that. And when you look at how they look at it, it's really you know, one, they learn a lot from their failures and, and we do too, right? I mean, we talked about how U.S. counterinsurgency doctrine and strategy in Iraq specifically and other places has has evolved over time, uh, but they've continued to evolve. And I think we, we still sit in this 
Uh, one, we're, we're pretty uh, circumspected whether this works or not anymore, and we don't want to do it. Uh, but we also think that we've pretty much mastered it. It's just it was an impossible task. And I would I don't think that's true. Um, I'll give you an example and I'll contrast the Islamic State and the U.S. on insurgency slash counterinsurgency. You know, for them, they understand that this is a political Right. And this is what the this is what all the writings on counterinsurgency said. This is a political form of warfare, da da da, Galula, whoever. Um, and for them, it's about how do you build political coalitions, right? So the Islamic State is a political coalition of a lot of different what they consider to be sympathetic insurgent groups that were willing to rally under their banner. And they were not really successful in getting it to be that big. Um, my suspicions are that between 2008 and certainly by the time we left, they were very adept at recruiting fragments from the Sawa, recruiting fragments from resistance groups like 1920s revolution, the uh, Islamic army, Mujahideen army. So they, all these disaffected Sunni groups that reconciled with the government, but they weren't exactly happy with that. And this might also affect Afghanistan, by the way, uh, today. You have the disaffected and they were there. If you read the Fallujah Memorandum, it's basically like it is a strategy to improve the political position of the Islamic State. Is That's the title of it, the official title of the Fallujah Memorandum. And it, it literally talks about politics. It's like how, look, as soon as the Americans leave, it's going to be a free for all. And it's a free-for-all in the Sunni communities, and the Shia don't know anything or understand anything about this particular community. So how do we dominate Sunni politics in Anbar, in Nineveh, in, in other areas, uh, in parts of Diyala? And, and that's... Now contrast that to the United States, who finds the Sawa on their doorstep, almost gift wrap, uh, certainly some adept negotiating by American military who were getting much better at coin by 2006-7. And so we recruit them on board, as, as Bill was talking about earlier, and we, we help them come after the Islamic State. And I, you know, our unit was part of that. We were hunt, helping them hunt down Islamic State bigwigs. We killed, they helped uh, our JSOC task force kill the number three Islamic State of Iraq, um, the the Emir of the Southern Belt, Al Tunisi, and that's described in ISIS Reader, right there, like a mile from where I was at the time, uh, and and he was really flushed out from the Sawa. They had they were they had him running from hiding spot to hiding spot, and eventually that's going to get JSOC attention. So um, so that's what it did. But you know, as Bill mentioned, like our failure to build on that is much more a political failure. Right. It's a political failure, not from a U.S. political perspective, but we didn't understand how the Sawa was going to fit into Iraqi politics. And I will be I will also argue that we didn't we didn't even care how the Sawa was going to fit yeah, into the of, of Iraqi politics because that was their problem. And that was the Iraqi government problem. But if you're doing counterinsurgency, that's your problem. Right. If you're external support for counterinsurgency, you are that is your problem. And I've got. I've even researched video. I've, I've looked at old videos of brigade commanders who are running the post 2008 and, and really astute journalists are asking him like, what's the deal with the Sawa? They're like, seem kind of political. They're running for office. They're mayors of towns. They're police chiefs. What, what exactly is the Sawa thing turning into? And you know, you have really smart American military commanders saying like the Sawa is not political. 
we do not support any political entities in Iraq other than the Iraqi government. Wow. And, yeah. And you're like, do you you missed the whole point of this whole thing, <laughs> yeah. man? Like, it, and you can imagine, like, we walk away. It's not if it's not a political organization, which it was. And you just walk away from it and say, hey, we gave you money and, and arms, so good luck with that. But counterinsurgency is a political, it's more political than military. Then we've, and so we've got a lot to learn is what I would, would argue, right? And same, you know, same probably goes for Afghanistan, although you guys are much smarter on that than, than I could ever be. Well, you know, it's interesting. I On the Fallujah Memorandum, uh, and again, I've got three pages of notes on this baby, so that's how interesting I thought it. Uh, It's my uh, favorite chapter for sure. Yeah, yeah, chapter five of the book. Folks, go buy the book just for this one. Uh, Trust me, it's a very interesting uh, document. Uh, Just a couple quick things on this I wanted to interject here. One, uh, I thought it was interesting. They were using Mullah Omar and the Taliban as their political model in the document. You can see where they talk about Mullah Omar as the rallying political figure for Afghanistan. And then they immediately transition to Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, who becomes the, the emir of the Islamic State of Iraq. Um, they're saying that basically we need our Mullah Omar in Iraq in order to politically unify our forces. Exactly what you're saying, Craig, about the, the essence of this being a political conflict. Um, and they also, of course, uh, talk about Ayman al-Zawahiri's recommendation. In this case, he was recommending that all the Mujahideen rally around the Islamic State of Iraq. And there's an excerpt there. And I want to say, as I was reading through your, your document, this is part of the reason why I was kicking myself, because... Um, we, I, we just completed this review of what al-Qaeda senior leadership was saying, both internally and externally on the Islamic State of Iraq. And that passage you have matches up perfectly with what they were saying in other files. So you've got Zawahiri and bin Laden saying the exact same thing in their internal correspondence between each other, in their correspondence with others in Iraq and elsewhere, and also in what they're saying in their public messages. And in fact, when they have dissidents, Islamic State of Iraq critics and dissidents come to them from Iraq and say, you know, this thing is going bad. This thing is, you know, these guys are extremists. They're not following the the Al-Qaeda manhaj or methodology. What you have Al-Qaeda leadership saying is, you know, well, you're going to have to work it out because that's our, that's the horse you're going to have to back. And we're backing them. And basically everybody has to unify by them for exactly the reason you're saying, Craig, the political reason. It's all about unifying the politics in the post sort of American withdrawal uh, from Iraq. And the, the, that, that document is so clear. Again, at this time, the do- timeline was closer to being on point because this is written. You guys have this document written sometime in late 2009, early 2010. And they're saying within two years, the Americans are going to be gone. And we have to think right now about how we're going to unify ourselves politically, um, not just militarily, for that that coming day. And so I, I think that document illustrates exactly the point you're making. And I think it's a crucial point that's probably been lost. And on Afghanistan... I just say this, um, you know, the, the one of the big problems in Afghanistan is long ago, and I, I think this thing's all screwed up. I don't, I don't think this is going to get fixed anytime soon. I think that I have a very bleak vision of what's coming. Um, but the politics of it was such that the American side assumed that the Taliban was going to reconcile for political vision other than the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, other than its original totalitarian regime. And I got to tell you what sort of gets especially Bill's ire. It's just, you want to draw him out. I'm drawing him out right now. I can see him itching on Zoom. Right? Yeah, I can see him itching on Zoom. I can, see him, I can see him itching as I'm saying this. Is There's just a mountain of evidence that says that the Taliban's been all about their Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan along. That's what they're waging jihad for. That's the political goal. And I got to tell you, there's not a scintilla of evidence that I've, I'm aware of, real evidence, that says that they're willing to compromise on that. And that's sort of what Bill, Bill and I, we look at your book and, and talking about what the enemies are saying in Iraq, our enemies are saying in Iraq, and, and giving that weight and understanding it because because the political objectives has to be understood. 
we got to tell you, the same mistakes were made in Afghanistan. People didn't listen and are not listening to what the Taliban is really saying. And at this point, I think it's too late. I think Americans don't care. And I think that the bottom line is that the time has run out, but their political vision is, remains unchallenged. And I could just, I'm going to turn over to Bill because he's itching to sort of chime in. So. No, I don't want to turn this in. We've done a lot on Afghanistan. Yeah, we don't want to do Afghanistan again. Yeah. This is, this is, yeah. I, and, and I'll be really brief. I mean, look, this is a matter of just, you know, again, you, you got to match their words, what they're saying daily. And the Taliban is prolific in, in its propaganda. You want to talk uh, um, talk about easily tracking what the Taliban is saying? They're releasing it in English on Voice of Jihad every day. Just watch what they say. Watch what they do. Don't listen to what someone like Suhail Shaheen says behind the scenes about women's rights or, or things like that. He's just lying through his teeth. The official statements contradict everything that he says. And, you know, it is difficult to take everything they say at face value. But at some point when you're going through the primary source material it be, and, and you're watching what they're doing on the ground, it just becomes unmistakable. You know what they're about. And in the case of, like you said, Tom, with the Taliban, it's about the restoration of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. In Iraq, it was about, you know, declaring eventually the uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq reconstituting itself and re-engaging into the fight, which ultimately became which ultimately became ISIS. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I've had some really good debates with, a, with my good colleague here, Mohammed Hafez, I'm sure you guys know. Uh, here at MPS, uh, the Naval Postgraduate School, and you know he he he's a little more you know these folks are just incapable of getting along with others, and this is why they fought their rivals about the time of the the awakening in 2006 and seven. There's documents on these fights and the and the and the exchange of letters between the Islamic State of Iraq and their their rivals in 1920s or Islamic Army and and. I look at it a different way, which is it is about this end state of creating a caliphate, which is the rub. And the Islamic army is like, look, we're really fighting to get the Americans out. And then yeah, once that yeah. happens, we'll we'll negotiate a pretty cushy, you know, we'll negotiate our way into power and we'll share power with the Shia government and we'll figure all this out later. But we'll have a seat at the table. And, it, and the, the Islamic state is like, no. We're going to create a caliphate. What do you not understand about what we're trying to do here? This is the proper way, the proper methodology, et cetera. And so at the end of the day, those those groups are never. But what the Islamic State was successful in doing was letting these groups fragment from within. The, the Islamic army does not exist anymore. Or if it does, it's, it's a reconstitution, very small element. In 1920, all of the massive, large you know, resistance to occupation groups on the Sunni side eventually dissipate and, and fragment from within, largely over disagreements about how to reconcile with the government. The Islamic State's been consistent from the beginning. We're not reconciling with the government. And that's, that's you know, the ISIS-K aspect and their affiliate, which is obviously very well, it's influenced by the Islamic State Central nowadays. It, it feel you know, they're, that's their angle, I think, in Afghanistan. And it's going to make them as real zillion as well, because there are going to be a lot of folks, like you said, the Taliban goes too far in one direction. That's going to be a problem for them. And then you're going to end up with even a bigger problem with ISIS. Yeah, I mean, there. well, look, look with Taliban. The bottom line is the day of Taliban, the people just don't give this any credence, but they should. The Taliban's leader is the Emir of the Faithful, Habatul Al-Khanzada. That, you know, it's not the emir of some tribe somewhere in Afghanistan, right? It's the emir of the faithful, meaning for all Muslims. 
they're not backing off their political claim. You know, the Taliban, one of the, one of the models you see is that the ISIS-K is going to um, pick off sort of disaffected Taliban al-Qaeda commanders who don't like the negotiations with the U.S. And there probably is some truth to that, right? Uh, there probably are some commanders who don't like the talks at all. But I don't think that the big grand reconciliation, this is what we're saying, the Taliban is not going to stop its jihad against the Afghan government. I mean, since the deal was signed on February 29th, uh, you know, Bill has documented hundreds upon hundreds of attacks. Why? Because they're fighting for the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. That's why they keep attacking. There's nothing in the agreement, even though Secretary of State Mike Pompeo vouches for it. Yep, I'm hitting you again. Uh, you know, even though he keeps vouching for this deal, there's nothing in that agreement that says that they're going to back off of their Islamic Emirate. In fact, the State Department had this clumsy language. I don't know if you saw the agreement where it says, you know, the, uh, the U.S. State Department, the U.S. government, and the agreements with the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which the state U.S. doesn't recognize as a legitimate enemy. And the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is in the agreement like 40 times. And every time this is appended with, but we don't really recognize it. Well, again, they won't even back off of it for a signing document to get us out, you know? So, uh, I mean, that tells you a lot about their political goals, which are the same to this day as they were in 2001, unfortunately. You know? Yeah, we mentioned the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan so many times in that document not being legitimate that we legitimized it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, let me ask you a question here going forward, uh, you know, both on Iraq, what you're seeing today, you've, you've, you've invested so much of your life and your time and, and Americans like you invest your time in Iraq. What are your, what's your, I don't want to say you have a crystal ball, but looking forward, Craig, what do you think about, and I'll throw this to Bill too, if you, two of you to answer sort of what you think is the future of the Islamic State. And then what do you think is the future of the Islamic State and Al Qaeda? I know some some analysts have predicted a grand reconciliation. We're not predicting that uh, at this point. Uh, in fact, just as before we recorded this, the day before, there was another video of ISIS ISIS put out from Yemen railing against Al Qaeda once again. You know, yeah, uh, I think they, yeah. yeah, I think they've built a pretty big ideological and and uh, well of arguments against Al Qaeda. I don't see that that divide being uh, you know across anytime soon. But what do you think is the future for Iraq here with the Islamic State and, and both in Iraq and Syria and globally? And, you know, what do you think is the res, the remaining capacity of their insurgency? You know, part of, you mentioned earlier, you used the, a phrase that's near and dear to our heart, Craig, ebb and flow of the whole thing, you know, which is how, we, how we've always seen it. How do, you, how do you see this going forward in the next couple of years? Obviously, none of us are, are soothsayers here, right? So we, right. we have to guess a little bit. But what do you think is the current sort of trajectory? If you had to do a Fallujah memorandum, let's say. And you were sitting down, you're an ISIS policymaker, and you had to rewrite the Fallujah Memorandum from late 2009 to, to early 2010. What would you say going forward? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a that's obviously a really important question. It's a tough question. I, I don't I don't pretend to know the answer. And I don't think it's really determinative. Like, you know, ISIS came back oh, really sure. strong from 2007-8 defeat, really strategic defeat. Uh, but all defeats, are, you know, defeat and victory are temporary temporary conditions, if you will, um, in, in a lot of ways, right? You win World War II in 1945 and the Cold War starts up almost, you know, within two years, three years, and yeah. you're fighting within five. So, right. So victory and defeat, um, you know, they can come back. They could come back from defeat. I think one of their strategic problems, if I was, if I was, you know, their strategic in their shop trying to figure out their a way out of their current you know military defeat really political defeat as well which is much more important right you lost the caliphate you got it and then you lost it and that's you know the the u.s put together a pretty good coalition to defeat that and um there you know whether it can be sustained or not is a is a is a good question and in some ways we're we had a better answer than we did in 2008 but you know we've just as quickly 
maybe even quicker, uh, you know, kind of pulled out of that of that and left those folks uh, hanging a little bit. Um, but regardless, from the Islamic State uh, perspective, uh, they burned a lot of bridges, both, uh, as you point out, like the ability to reconcile with Al Qaeda, which, you know, it's hard to I think as late as 2012, I've seen Islamic State of Iraq videos where they're singing praise of yeah. the Taliban and Malone. Exactly. Yeah. 2012. Exactly. exactly. So, you know, and they put this in their propaganda, which means it is official, you know, yeah. ISIS exactly. policy. So 2012, right? This is the, uh, the Haditha raid. So, you know, if you, but now it, 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 I'm, I'm, I agree with you. I, I see they've, they've kind of boxed themselves in from anything more than tactical cooperation. Yeah, that's it. Tactical. Yeah, yeah. that's it. So yeah. It, 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 they've kind of set out, hey, we have a different manhaj, as you say there, there. We have a different methodology, and it's just incompatible with ISIS. And there's interesting in the ISIS reader, there's a letter from 2007, that first year, that really important first year Bill and I were talking about at the beginning, where, you know, the defector, Utebi, Al-Utebi, when he goes back to Al-Qaeda, yeah. says... A Saudi. A Saudi. Yeah, was a Saudi. Chief, he was a chief religious figure within yeah. Islamic State of Iraq, yeah. He said these guys even call it the the Islamic State Monhaj. Like, they... they, right. they And they differentiate it from the Al-Qaeda one. Yeah. And it's actually more pragmatic. On the ground, it's more pragmatic. It seems much more violent and stuff, but that's just the enemies. How they deal with locals was 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 different and it'd be interesting to see you know uh abu Bakr before he got killed was was struggling with that same kind of thing how do you deal now with the people who didn't support us when we were running the caliphate the people who turned on us the people who kind of defected away and ran away and didn't fight like how do we deal with that and he's he's the pragmatic one i mean he's got hardliners saying like well tech fear for all those people yeah and he's like no you can't we can't yeah. do that yeah. i was almost hoping they were going to go that route and that would have been the end of this group for sure. Yeah, he, he, had, he had a faction who was even declaring takfir on him on Baghdadi yeah. himself because he didn't declare takfir on others, right? That's it was right. this chain, this chain takfir of this crazy, you know, ultra. I mean, you think about it with ISIS, this ultra extremist camp within ISIS, which is just sort of almost unfathomable to an American. You know, think of a, some group that's actually more more radical than Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, saying you're not radical enough, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi. You know. But that's way out there. I mean, I, that camp, that camp's not going to come back to Al Qaeda anytime soon. I think a good portion of ISIS isn't. I think I agree with you. I think there's. I think you have to keep an eye on for tactical uh, cooperation. Yeah. And certain certain areas, they may come back into the fold, or there may be a re- reuniting. I mean, who knows? I mean, it's possible, and it's a evolving yeah. story. But but the they're overall, really, you know, Syria, exactly. the, the Assad regime being with Russian support, being somewhat successful in Syria, somewhat, and then the absolute dysfunction of the Iraqi political system right now really aren't good. You know, they're obviously not good indicators of what's going to happen. And, you know, if, if those continue to go in those current directions then the Islamic state is going to do pretty well in it's, you know, second comeback, right. you know, ISIS, this should be ISIS 3.0 or IS 3.0. The fascinating thing though, is how they've kept their affiliates. I don't think there's enough, analysis or or discussion on this because that's another fail point that i could see have have happened to him one the internal tech fear issue blowing up and then mishandling that and then going down like their rivals did post 2007 
it's the ability it's you know like is west africa redoubling their allegiance even talking about like well why would we stay with this group when they don't have a caliphate they don't have land they don't control territory they are not and tom keen so why why should we pay allegiance to this group that no longer is really uh as robust as it was when we when we jumped on the bandwagon and they said well because all of this all of the nothing's changed from our allegiance and we should continue our allegiance to our emir etc etc and they've also redoubled that with the new emir so the the that's that's fascinating i'm not sure i thought that was going to happen if if I may, on the, um, I'll, you know, I, f- I always found it interesting that, you know, one of the things, one of the issues between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State before the split was Al-Qaeda's argument has always been, look, don't declare the caliphate if you can't defend it, right? So the Islamic State declares the caliphate and they can't defend it, right? So the irony was Al-Qaeda was right. You would have thought that might have gotten a big chunk of, of the Islamic State followers to jump back on the Al-Qaeda bandwagon. And yet we really haven't. It's, it's, there's been a trickle here, a trickle there. And I think with the reconciliation, I think the, the Islamic State followers have just sort of bought in and they're committed to the Islamic State territory or no territory. Uh, I think that's a major issue, but it's one that the, the follow, they've, you know, as you said, with, with the, particularly with the, um, with their, their governance or, um, that, you know, look, they've been able to remain cohesive. They've been resilient through this issue and uh, something to keep an eye on. As far as the, the future of the Islamic State goes, particularly if we're looking in Iraq and, and Syria, we're looking at ISIS core. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors. How does COVID, for instance, uh, play into this? How, or how committed do the Iranians remain? What do sanctions? Is there a potential conflict with the U- United States? The Shia militias. There's just so many factors. You know, do do, do the Russians uh, continue to back this out? I think that's been you know one of the undertold stories uh, of this entire decade is that look, you actually can win counterinsurgencies using very brutal tactics. The Russians did it twice. They're doing it in Syria and they did it in Chechnya. And you know, I'm not advocating that. Don't get me wrong. Um, the United States brand takes a lot more effort and uh, patience and um, has a lot more pitfalls. But, you know, look, the, the Russian model there has worked. But if the Russians pull out, if the Iranians stop supporting the Syrians, you can have a revival of the Islamic State there. Um, so, and, yeah, they're, and they're a, in the game right now. We're documenting on a day-to-day yeah, basis. You know, they're, they're, the eastern, right, Syria, eastern Syria and into the deserts, they're, they're going after Assad's forces as we speak. Right. You know, so, And yeah. Tom, as you noted to me the other day, a lot of uptick in attacks in places like Diyala and Salahuddin. And so the, the Islamic State is by no means a, a spent force. Um, it's difficult to determine what the factors are that can get them to rise. We could know. I mean, as, as if things stay as is, I suspect it remains a sort of an, an insurgent group, a guerrilla group that might be able to come out and take some territory here and there. But, you know, the other factors that we don't know, that can that could change the game for them. I realize that's a non-answer answer, but it's the best you can do. So I've been looking hard at their insurgency doctrine, tracing it out and kind of differentiating it from what people kind of are like, oh, management of savagery. Well, if you if you read management of savagery a couple of times, you know, going back to primary text, like 
it's kind of vague on the whole phase yeah. three yeah. stuff. Like there's not a lot yeah. there because he never did it. He, no one's right. ever done it before, right? No one's ever done it like the way the Islamic State has done it. And so much like U.S. counterinsurgency doctrine evolved over four years, like we were talking about, Bill, you know, their insurgency doctrine has has de- evolved and developed. And they're very patient, right? I mean, I think Mosul, the capture of Mosul is interesting to look back on. Uh, we don't know as much about that particular campaign as uh, as we as we should. But I think largely that was a surprise to them because they have a very patient model, which is don't take territory unless, you know, you have this catastrophic stuff. But what, you know, they they even term it like draining. It's not even, attrition is not even a good description of it. It's like draining. It's like if I cut you in the right places, you'll bleed out and you'll just be standing there. And then all of a sudden you'll go white and fall over. And then that's when you got to go and we'll go everywhere all at once. We'll throw everything at it, you know, uh, almost Klaus Witzi and just, you know, go for, uh, go for that. But, but we don't even know when that's going to happen. And I've seen Islamic state, you know, primary sources in Al Naba and their newsletter saying like, we didn't actually know Mosul was going to fall. We were, it was just part of the plan. And then everything just collapsed. Now our plan is that the, the, the opponent collapse, but you know, that it actually took a lot of work. And if you look, if you go back and look at the, the data on attacks in Mosul in 2012, 2013, 2014, which people don't really pay attention to, like you start to wonder like, how did Mosul last as long as it did? Craig, you mentioned earlier the uh, Haditha raid in 2012. And to me, that was sort of a seminal moment. That's when I knew this was all going to happen. <laughs> I remember getting this video and publishing on it and talking about it with Tom. And we were just, I was just like, this is It was brutally not efficient. Good. It was brutally efficient. Yeah. I mean, that they saw that this was, this was uh, methodical in a way that we were not witnessing in other videos being put out. Right. And, and for, for the listeners, this was a, the, Al Qaeda, or yeah, I guess it was Al Qaeda in Iraq at the time. Islamic State of Iraq. Islamic State of Iraq at the time. They organized about 200 or so of their fighters. They had police and military uniforms. They came into the, the town of Haditha, which is between um, Mosul and Ramadi, and they just came in. They killed the police chief and all the. Um, they assassinated police officers. Sat in the town, you know, gave a speech, all that stuff, and then they melted away in a couple hours. And you watch this video, and you're like. Whoa. This is coming. This and and then what happens in by by next year, you have Fallujah fall. You have you know other towns in in Anbar province starting to fall. And then by July or I guess June of 2014, that that Islamic State offensive kicks off with the culmination of Mosul falling. I look back at that and go, yeah, I saw that one coming. And I remember warning people in the military and intelligence and anyone who would listen. Everyone's like, eh, Iraq's not an issue. But you you watched it again. There is value in watching their propaganda and things like this. And and again, you've got to match it up to what's happening on the ground. To me, it was very obvious, particularly with the situation that was going on inside Syria, that something really bad was going to happen. And at this time, too, you had very serious political problems inside of Iraq. That the awakening wasn't getting paid anymore. There, you know, you actually had the Iraqi government targeting uh, Sunni protest camps and killing people. So the whole thing politically was falling apart. If we have that kind of, if we start seeing Islamic State propaganda like that, you have an Iraqi government collapse. Like right now, there's the Shia parties don't want 
the Shia, um, I'm sorry, the Shia militias, the Iranian-backed Shia militias do not want the current um, nominee to be the Iraqi um, premier or to be the Iraqi um, prime minister. So, um, you know, that can create problems and open up space. If they start fighting in Baghdad, that could open up space for, um, for the Islamic State to make a comeback. But, you know, there's a lot that goes on under, co- under the covers that we don't see, but that's what all of us are, our jobs is to try and keep an eye on it and, and make sense of it. That, that Haditha raid, uh, I wish, I wish we had, um, you know, it's hard to put a video as a, as a text, although we, we did use yeah. one video and use a tra- transcript yeah, of it, but it was more the of a structure, the structure, yeah, it was the, stru- the structure of the caliphate. Yeah. yeah that's I, a I covered video to show yeah, it is. The, really it is. the bureaucracy at angle and how they try to control violence. It's very, it's an interesting aspect, but the, yeah. going back to the Haditha video as a signal, right. As Bill was talking about as a signal, um, we, um, me and a couple of partners wrote on it in a, in a piece that was out in last fall called black ops. And it, it looks at it, it, the Islamic state's use of special operations as part of this evolving insurgency mm-hmm. doctrine. Mm-hmm. And they've actually put, we, we, as we discuss, as we wrote about it and, and how, as we categorized it, they, they've committed three special operations in their history. One back in 2007, trying to, trying to, basically stall the the sawa in ramadi and it was called the battle of donkey island is written up in oh, the yeah, washington post yes. yep. yep so that's the, we looked at that was a that was a you know plan just like the haditha raid and, and the haditha raid is actually named after the commander of the one who did the 07 ramadi battle of donkey island so there's connections there right and probably people yeah. who are connected with that yeah um and so there's a propaganda angle because once they went into haditha and captured the town like bill described they they actually have propagandists aren't you know who are with the assault force going out and handing out handbills because they said they had to try to get to the population which they had had trouble doing because of what they called the blackout and and then finally the the police chief wasn't a police chief when we dug He's a Sawa. He was a Sawa awakening leader, the former police, a former policeman. But so it's really political. This is the he's the political leader of the town as far as security and politics. He's running Haditha and they were able to get to him, which which sends a message to all Sunnis in Ambar. Like, well, if they can get to the number one guy who's guarded by hundreds of people in the middle of Haditha in the middle of the night, um, we've got a problem and we might need to rethink who we're um, who we're with. And then the, the, the interesting thing is they, that happened in March and then they they don't release this video until August. And it coincides with two other things, which is Abu Bakr's first real speech ever. Right. He waits two years. So we even I don't think we've this heard is other, other than the eulogy. He gave a eulogy for he bin gave Laden. a eulogy for Osama bin Laden. You're exactly right. right. So that, right. like a real right. perfunctory kind of, you know, yeah, um, short yeah. thing, so his, which, by the way, contrary to what his defenders later said, he was very deferential to bin Laden Zawahiri in that he actually yep. says you Absolutely. have he says he says to Zawahiri, you have faithful men here in Iraq. You know, to basically throw us where you want, use us how you want, and that—that that was a very. I remember the translating that, and that was uh, does not support the later claim that he was already out of the Al Qaeda fold right. by. Yeah. You know, and Nani's anyway. lying yeah. later on when he's. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, you have Abu Bakr's first, re- you know, really, you know, real speech, long speech, um, two years after he's. So he waits two years. He's not giving speeches when they're down in the dumps, which is why I don't right. think the new leader is going to be that visible until you can see evidence uh, and they used point. haditha yeah. as evidence because they, they they released the video and um 
Abu Bakr's speech is, announces the breaking of the wall, the breaking the walls campaign, which you guys have written about. I know I've read it on your site. I read, I think I watched the Haditha video off of your uh, link off of your site when you wrote about yeah. it, when it happened. And that's, you know, re- that was really influential on me. And I came back to it years later to write, a, uh, with a couple partners along you know, 30 page paper looking at the Haditha raid and what it tells us about ISIS military doctrine and how they even think about special operations, which they do very carefully. The Abu Ghraib breakout is another special operation, yeah. right? It's, it's just very exquisitely planned and executed. And it gets 500 hardcore high level leaders like Balawi, who plans the Mosul op later, but lots of other folks that are that probably are still out there, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, Craig, the, uh, at that point in time, too, when that Haditha raid video came out, um, the Islamic State uh, of Iraq was also uh, publishing videos of its training camps in the deserts and things of that nature. So, you know, they, they really were pushing that special forces angle. But, you know, it, it became their actual operations, right? I mean, this is, this is those convoys moving through the desert to take uh, Mosul and to Crete and all the other cities. I mean, it, it really all stemmed, like, you have to wonder how hard were these guys really training to do this. I always found it to be in, in, impressive. And and I'm going to make just one more quick point. When both you and I were in Iraq, I remember that um, Sheikh Sattar, who was the the leader of the Iraqi and organizer of the Awakening in Anbar province, he was assassinated. He, that was a, a, a brilliant Islamic State operation. I remember going into the unit that I was embedded with, and because I— did you know you don't know whether the consequences of something like this but this guy the the unit that i was with was with a um an awakening group right and i go into the commander's office and said, sir i want you to be aware you know that this happened i don't know what you know they didn't even know who Sheikh Sitar was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like, I mean, when we yeah. talk about the counter-surge, like, I just, I, and, and don't get me wrong, they were, they did a fantastic job at counterinsurgency in this one particular area. Sure. But there were, I just never felt this, like, you know, we're talking about the, you know, the cohesiveness of, op- like, there wasn't, like, a real understanding, it wasn't, like, a guidebook for the guys, for the military's commanders coming in to understand this. So I just, I just remember walking away from that one going, ah, Damn, I just wish we just were better educated on this. And yeah. uh, anyway, just figured I'd share when that story. When they kill Sitar, um, I've I've written on the I've written on the counter Sawa campaign that they have. Both their propaganda campaign. You had to be really careful talking about Sunnis, right? Who've rebelled yeah. against them, but they want them back, right? So they got to be. They, it's not the usual rhetoric and propaganda that they use to like obviously talking about the Shia, right? And uh, but, you know, they they really, again, much like the early days we were talking about, they are really confused on how to deal with the Sawa. And they finally figure out they want to do a two pronged approach, which is reconciliation for those who will come back and then killing the ones that won't. And they they start that campaign there. They kind of fumble around for like six months, which is the longest time I've seen of them really fumbling around other than maybe leadership transition posts or Cowie, which was they were trying to do a lot of things in that period, as we write about. But, um, you know, they, they when they kill Sitar, as you're pointing out, that's a pivotal point. We barely pay any attention to it whatsoever. Like hey, the awakening leader who somehow managed to cobble this coalition, political coalition together to fight a very brutal group that's going to be advantageous to us strategically. Oh, they just killed him. Um, and he was killed by a member of his own tribe. And the Islamic State said it was an honor killing right in their propaganda. Like he he had betrayed 
the Muslims and worked with the Crusaders and this is his just punishment. And that's when they, just like Breaking of the Walls campaign, just like they they, they tied their propaganda campaign of reconciliation for those who want to come back. And that's when you were there, September 2007, October. That's when they, but that's a year after the awakening. That's It took them a long right. time to figure it that did. out. So they it's really interesting. Several times. Uh, yeah. Marine attacks, all kinds yeah. of craziness. Yeah. So, so, Let's. Uh, I think we're we're probably going to wrap it up here in the next couple of minutes. Although I'll only do so with uh, the caveat or the condition that Craig comes back and talks some more because you can see that these guys could talk about this quite a lot longer. I, I got one quick question for you guys on the way out, Craig. What do you think about the new ISIS leader and what's known about him? I I I, I don't know. I I, you know, I see what the U.S. government's identification of him is. I understand that. I, I have to track and report that, and I don't have any evidence that it's wrong. But it is sort of strange, the whole thing. I mean, again, a lot of times it speaks to the fact that we don't really know a lot of times a lot about the even the, the senior most guys in these organizations. Um, and that's at large. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on him or who he is and his pedigree and what maybe he's looking to do now that Baghdadi's gone and he's in charge of uh, the post-territorial caliphate. You know, what's, what's really, really interesting about it is how the Islamic State is, uh, I think this is my next project with, uh, with Herrera, my co one of my co-authors here, and that's uh, leadership succession, how they do leadership succession, which we tend to focus a lot on leader targeting, which is again, our, you know, that's how we do things. And yeah. But how do they understand leadership succession? If you, and, you, and I know you guys are super familiar with all this, having written about these over the years and having read your writings on this, but if you look at, you know, Abu Umar, the whole really vagueness and the deliberate kind of who the heck is he? Nobody knows. Uh, nobody knew who Abu Bakr was. Yeah. For years, nobody knew who he was. It finally, it, it takes about a year or so for someone yeah. to really pin down the real, real identification. But they actually, their leadership successions, like, look, we, it's kind of counterintuitive, but we'll, we'll put this person in. They'll be a nobody to everybody else. They'll be somebody to us. And that's all that matters. But now that they've established a pattern of that, you got to just take us on our word because we've never screwed you in the past. Like when we put up Abu Omar, he's really Abu Omar. When we put up Abu Bakr, he's really Abu Bakr. And you just have to trust us for who we say we are. But they fit all these criteria: Quraysh tribe, yeah. uh, Muhammad, or the tie to Muhammad's tribe. They're religious scholars who who understand the religion and they can be the caliph. They can guide us in our religious practice. Um, they're they're jihadists. They fought in the battle against the Americans. Right. That's almost a prerequisite for these folks, whether it's uh, Zarqawi, Abu Umar, Abu Hamza or uh, Abu Bakr or the newest one um, who they claim ha was fought in the, you know, against the Americans, which means, you know, in the, Abu Abraham. Yeah, Abu Abraham. Yeah, Abu Abraham fought against the Americans. And that's, you know, and the Americans and, have identified him as Haji Abdullah, who's a guy we've yeah. tracked and we, we know who that is. Basically, yeah, you did right. time in Buka like the rest right. of them, yeah, you know? exactly, I mean, just yeah. like just like all the rest. So we, we we know who these folks are. There's some controversies over whether he's <laughs> can be Koresh because he's Turk, you know, Turk man. Yeah. Yeah, 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 but I I think you know some folks have said like you know hey in, in these family trees like any family tree yeah I mean, anything it's... is possible. So I'm a descendant would... of Charlemagne, don't you know? <laughs> exactly. But, by the way, that that a nickel <laughs> that a nickel will get me a nickel. So you know. right, there's a yeah, few so. people who claim Koresh. <laughs> I mean, I, I just saw an Islamic State document in the George Washington uh, ISIS files that this is a random ISIS document of somebody. And it was a woman and she traced her lineage all the way back to Hussein, 
the son. Now she's a Sunni, but she tra- traces her, which is not also not unusual. Abu Bakr traced his lineage sure. to Hussein. So, you know, th- this is something culturally we don't understand that necessarily. But you know, people are, are more than willing to put their family tree out there and say, "Hey, I, I'm actually who I say I am." So I don't, I don't, I think the controversy on that is going to melt away like they have in the past. We'll know who this person really is, and it's, it is probably uh, Haji Abdullah, who is a. And by the way, like you said, Craig, they maintain worldwide all these affiliates, the so-called provinces. They all saluted the flag when, yep, they all saluted the flag when he was named the emir. That's that's the remarkable cohesion of what they're doing internationally. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at his background, they say he is a religious scholar or, you know, scholar. Scholar is a a vague term that doesn't mean a whole bunch. You know, I say that as an academic, but um, he's 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 religiously trained. And then, so he fits exactly the profile abu umar uh all of uh, abu Bakr, the these very uh these religiously trained slash jihadists right although i don't think abu Bakr was much of a fighter uh, abu umar supposedly was but we we will never know mm-hmm. all right well i think we're gonna leave it there but again i'm gonna ask craig to come back on our show some other time you know that events in iraq are gonna mandate that this is uh and syria and elsewhere there's gonna be more to talk about in the future hey, thanks a lot and congratulations on this on this new podcast i'm loving it and i'd love to have uh you know my colleagues you know anytime charlie charlie's a propaganda yeah, he's really studied the propaganda definitely, definitely. Um, much much more than i have and definitely. understands the propaganda as does herrero and herrero is also he and i work a lot on the leadership that we were just talking about so yeah i'd, I'd definitely encourage that absolutely no we're gonna we're gonna have them back i i made sure to write that in my preamble to today's podcast to make sure that we uh we know that those guys are welcome anytime we can coordinate our schedule so for sure and there's plenty to talk about going forward Um, but we want to thank our guest today, Craig Whiteside, for an excellent, excellent conversation. I assure you, while there's some ambiguity about the scholarship within Islamic State circles, there's no ambiguity about his scholarship and, uh, and his work. Um, we hope he'll, he'll join us again in the future, and his co-authors uh, will join us as well. They've written the excellent book, The ISIS Reader, Milestone Texts of the Islamic State Movement. Again, we think it's very important to look at primary sources and to reevaluate them over the years. We've certainly been reevaluating stuff going back as far as 2004 and, and learning from it. Uh, We want to thank you for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we will see you again next week. 